I know I'm interrupting, but before this podcast, 3CR has an important public service announcement. Currently, we are running our annual Radiothon, where we ask for your donations to keep community broadcasting alive. We rely on your support to keep media alternative. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate. And with that done, I hope you enjoy your show. Freedom of Species is a radio program dedicated to raising animal awareness. It is broadcast from the 3CR studios in Melbourne, Australia, and streamed live via the 3CR website. Podcasts are available from both the 3CR and the Freedom of Species websites. Welcome to Freedom of Species. I'm Kate Gracie, and today I'm going to share with you a presentation given by David Nybert. He is a sociology professor at Wittenberg University in Ohio. He's also an activist and has written many books on the issue of animal rights. Now, David's presentation is about the animal industrial complex, and it's been made available courtesy of Alternative Radio. So, here you go. This is Alternative Radio. I'm David Barsamian. This edition of AR features David Nybert, on the animal-industrial complex. Many have heard of the military-industrial complex, maybe even the prison-industrial complex, but the animal-industrial complex? Probably not. But you should. It's huge. Meat consumption per capita in the United States exceeds all other countries except for Luxembourg. The United States, with its ubiquitous fast-food outlets, might be called Burgerstan. But the love affair with meat may be waning. The Hindu-Buddhist roots of vegetarianism have gone way beyond their origins in South Asia. Today, vegetarians can be found everywhere and in ever-increasing numbers. Concern about cruelty and violence to animals and the impact of meat-eating on the environment are all contributing to a heightened awareness as to how we treat other creatures. We share our homes and lives with dogs and cats. We lavish care and affection upon them. But other animals endure pain and suffering on their way to our dinner plates. To talk about these issues is David Nybert. He's a former tenant organizer and community activist. He's an award-winning writer and professor at Wittenberg University. He spoke in Cleveland, Ohio. And now, David Nybert. The renowned historian and champion for peace and justice, Howard Zinn, once said, History is important. If you don't know history, it is if you were born yesterday. And if you were born yesterday, anybody in a position of power can tell you anything, and you have no way of checking up on it. So with Howard Zinn's words in mind, let's look back into history to examine the assertion that human exploitation of other animals is natural and has promoted social progress. For most of our time on the planet, humans foraged and lived primarily on plant-based diets, 
Our communities were egalitarian, and there was ample time for leisure and social activities. This long period has been referred to by anthropologists as the original affluent society. However, this period ended when humans began to routinely hunt large animals, primarily a male pursuit. As our species does not have the biological makeup of a predator, this hunting could only be accomplished through the creation of weapons. Those men most successful at such killing exert a growing power. Social hierarchy began to emerge and the status of women began to decline. The beginning of, of systemic human exploitation and social stratification can be traced to the advent of agricultural society in Eurasia roughly 10,000 years ago. Agricultural systems were tied to the exploitation of large social animals, including cows, horses, sheep, pigs, and goats, who were captured and exploited as laborers and for their hair, skin, body fluids, and flesh. Today, due to a growing body of work by cognitive ethologists, we know that these other sentient inhabitants of the earth have complex and rich social and emotional lives. They can experience considerable pleasure as well as intense pain. By their confinement, exploitation, cruel treatment, and over time, their biological manipulation, these other animals were desecrated. However, such use of other animals and the implications for our species has been masked by the term domestication. Let's take a brief digression to think about this word. We are taught in school that animal domestication was a positive development. Language is an important tool in rationalizing and naturalizing injustice, and we should always seek to expose those phrases and words that serve as ideological supports for oppressive systems. It is important to reject the term domestication, a word that sanitizes a violent practice and that naturalizes the oppression of, of other animals. Domestication is a word loaded with ideological bias and which undermines critical thinking. As these other animals were desecrated, I will refer to what happened to them as domesecration. And throughout my talk, I will try to avoid the use of words that objectify and defame devalued humans and other animals. Back then to early agricultural society, the possession of large numbers of domesticated animals became a sign of wealth and dominance, and elite males' treatment of them as property was extended to women and devalued people. Countless people were relegated to the socially constructed position of peasant, serf, and slave. Growing numbers of men, armed with weapons, weapons created for killing other animals, were dispatched by elites to raid other peoples for their domesticated animals and other sources of wealth. Violent attacks on distant societies were made possible by the use of horses as instruments of war. Like elite males in nomadic pastoralist society, the wealth and power of elite landowners in Roman society were linked to their control over large numbers of domesticated animals. Ranching was a favored investment for members of the Roman Senate. Weakened by war, decadence, and corruption, and by food shortages brought on by significant overgrazing and soil deterioration, Rome fell, leading to the period known as the Dark Ages, a highly stratified, classist, and sexist period in Europe characterized by incessant violence and war. 
medieval rulers devoted considerable land to raising and pasturing horses whose exploitation was essential for warfare, even though such use of land contributed to food shortages. While centuries of hunting free-living animals in Europe greatly diminished their numbers, medieval rulers expropriated enormous tracts of land for the creation of private hunting preserves. In Britain, for example, the lands claimed by hunting by monarchs, lands known as the Royal Forest, at one time comprised a quarter of all the land in England. Such use of land was another cause of hunger during the period. Stalking and killing other animals was the primary form of recreation for aristocratic males. Typically, they used domesticated dogs to chase free-living deer, pigs, and other animals to exhaustion, at which point they were killed. Another favorite tactic was to require devalued people to drive woodland animals toward elites who waited in ambush, first with bows and arrows and later with guns. Their hunting expeditions were sometimes turned into public displays of power and dominance designed to elicit fear and awe among the poor and dispossessed. And such warfare against free-living animals continued to be touted as the best preparation for war against other humans. So by the 15th century, Eurasia had been sculpted socially and culturally by thousands of years of widespread, large-scale violence and warfare. Again, while our species existed for thousands of years before this violence erupted, it was made possible and promoted by the oppression of other animals. Countless people were murdered, exploited, and enslaved, while millions of others perished from zoonotic diseases that resulted from domestication. Then, tragically in the 15th century, Eurasian customs and institutions, corrupted by incessant and widespread violence, were forced upon the rest of the world, including the Americas. In the Americas, even before contact with Europeans, the hunting of other animals had also given rise to the creation of weapons and human violence. However, as large social animals long had been extinct there, in part from overhunting, large-scale warfare and genocidal invasions did not occur. This is because there were no growing populations of domesticated animals requiring land and water expropriation, and because invasions of far-off regions were unnecessary and not practical without horses. Conflict between communities in the Americas primarily took the form of small-scale raids and skirmishes. Importantly, before the European invasions, the Americas were the home of some of the world's most advanced civilizations with impressive systems of crop cultivation. Sophisticated societies were developed and social progress occurred without the exploitation of domesticated animals. The ability of the Spanish to conquer what is now Latin America was only possible because of the Eurasian custom of exploiting other animals as laborers, rations, and instruments of war. However, even with their use of exploited animals and their long experience with large-scale warfare and weapon-making, effective invasion still would have been unlikely had it not been for the deadly effects of smallpox and other zoonotic diseases brought by the Spanish, diseases which dramatically reduced indigenous populations and increased their vulnerability. Many of the conquistadors were from Spanish ranching families, and they saw endless possibilities in expanding profitable ranching operations in Latin America. For example, after his ruthless conquest of the Aztecs, 
Hernan Cortez was awarded a vast estate for ranching. Cortez branded with hot irons both the domesticated animals under his control and the indigenous peoples he enslaved. Exporting the skin and body fat of animals to Europe was very profitable and drove the continual expansion of ranching operations in Latin America and the ongoing murder, displacement, and enslavement of indigenous peoples. The Spanish forced enslaved peoples, both Native Americans and increasingly enslaved peoples from Africa, to work on sugar plantations and in gold and silver mines. The exploitation of domesticated animals as laborers and as rations for the enslaved and the use of their body fat for making candles was essential for the day-to-day -day operation of profitable plantation and mining enterprises. The loss of life and environmental damage resulting from the spread of ranching in Latin America cannot be overstated. For example, looking at the region that is now Mexico, one historian writes, the spread of ranching was undoubtedly a major cause of depopulation and overgrazing the principal cause of the soil erosion which has plagued Mexico ever since. While the invasion of Latin America was both enabled and promoted by animal oppression, so was the European invasion of North America. However, with only limited number of domesticated animals available and exploited for basic subsistence, European investors in North America initially focused on the revenues to be gained from acquiring the skin and hair of free-living animals, especially beaver and deer, and Native Americans became valuable suppliers. Much of the hair of beavers, for example, was fashioned into hats that were worn by the wealthy and privileged in Europe as a symbol of their elevated status. The British, French, and the Dutch became fierce competitors in their struggle to become the primary suppliers of the skins of animals to Europe. In return for providing animal skins to the Europeans, Native Americans were provided with manufactured goods, including guns. In North America, widespread violence first occurred as Native Americans fought one another. This warfare was incited by the Europeans as populations of beaver, deer, and other animals were decimated, and skins were harder to acquire. Native Americans battled over regions where the animals still existed. For instance, in the mid-1600s, the Iroquois Confederation waged war on other indigenous societies in the Great Lakes region. In this intense and bloody conflict, called the Beaver Wars, the British backed their trading partners, the Iroquois, with guns and supplies against the indigenous societies who supplied skins to the French. Again, while fighting between Native American societies traditionally have been confined to limited raids and skirmishes, the pursuit of animal skin and hair for profit resulted in full-scale warfare and mass invasions. And similar to indigenous peoples in Latin America, indigenous peoples in North America also experienced the devastation and trauma of smallpox and other zoonotic diseases. Once populations of free-living animals in eastern areas had been decimated, Europeans pushed westward and began to acquire the skins of animals more directly, and the value of Native Americans to the invaders declined. And then, the indigenous peoples of the North experienced the fate of the indigenous peoples in Latin America. They were pushed westward as ranching operations expanded. One of the primary markets for the salted flesh of pigs and cows 
produced by the emerging ranching operations in North America were Caribbean plantations, where it was used as essential rations for enslaved workers. The expropriation of Native American land for ranching in North America and the damage domesticated animals did to Native American crops was one of the primary causes of war between indigenous peoples and the colonizers. Losing their homelands and their ability to provide for themselves, one Native American leader made the following appeal to the invaders. Your hogs and cattle injure us. You come near us to live and drive us from place to place. We can fly no further. Let us know where to live and how to be secured for the future from your hogs and cattle. The wealth derived from these entangled oppressions of indigenous peoples and other animals throughout the Americas was central in producing the change from the highly exploitive European feudal system to the even more exploitive and destructive capitalist system. Early capitalism brought the development of militaristic trading companies chartered by European monarchs. Such enterprises included the Africa Company of Britain, which profited from the trade in people who were enslaved, and the Dutch East India Company, which murdered and enslaved people in Africa and Southeast Asia. Even when the acquisition, transport, and sale of the skin, hair, and body fat of, of other animals was not a company's primary activity, European imperialism depended on naval fleets that conveyed horses who were exploited as instruments of war and were staffed by crews whose rations, similar to the rations of people who were enslaved, consisted primarily of the salted flesh of pigs and cows. The Dutch East India Company established a colony in what is now South Africa, a key location to provision ships destined to ravish Asia for spices and other valuables. One of the most important provisions was salted flesh. So similar to the invasions of the Americas, the Dutch began to focus on ranching and took land and domesticated animals from indigenous peoples. Soon the Germans, the French, and the British also violently expropriated lands throughout Africa for ranching operations. And continuing the European custom, free-living animals were slaughtered by colonists and tourists for sport. The influx of such evil-gotten wealth pouring into Europe, most of it directly linked to animal exploitation or enabled by it, prompted the land-rich, cash-poor aristocracy to look for ways to increase their revenues. Many sought to replace unprofitable feudal farming practices with sheep raising, and they became suppliers for the growing textile industry in Britain. This more lucrative enterprise required the displacement of people regarded as peasants and serfs. This disaster, known as the Enclosure Movement, occurred in Britain and other parts of Europe with support and enforcement by area governments. Commonly used land was increasingly claimed as private property, a change essential for the development of capitalism. So with the gradual breakup of the feudal order in Europe, exploited people were replaced with exploited sheep. The labor power of the displaced cultivators became a commodity to be sold for wages in early industrial towns. The creation of this desperate mass of people who were forced to take low-wage jobs disproportionately in textile mills where many wove the hair of sheep was as critical as the privatization of land and the growth of early industrial capitalism. The wealth that fueled capitalist expansion, especially in Britain, also came from Ireland. 
For centuries, the British had repressed the Irish and used much of the expropriated land there for raising cows and sheep. Salted pig and cow flesh produced in Ireland became a critical factor in profitable sugar production in the Caribbean, where it was an important source of food for people who were enslaved. Again, the importance of salted flesh for the profitable use of enslaved labor is illustrated by the response to a French temporary ban on imports from Ireland in 1672. The governor of the French Caribbean islands appealed to the French government in these words. I am daily tormented by trying to explain to you that if the prohibition on Irish beef continues, it is certain that the islands couldn't be struck by a worst catastrophe, because if the slaves are lacking in beef, colonists will be lacking in slaves. As land in Ireland was stolen by the British to raise animals destined to become rations for people who were enslaved, the Irish were forced to rely heavily on potatoes as a dietary staple. Potato seeds were inexpensive and yielded relatively large amounts of food on the small plots of land that remained for them. In 1845, the potato crop, on which so many people in Ireland were forced to depend, was struck by disease. The suffering of the native Irish turned calamitous. Over one million died from starvation and disease, and two million were forced to emigrate. Meanwhile, their deaths and departures allowed for the conversion of even more land for pasture, and the number of cows exported to Britain doubled after the disaster. The terrible pattern running through the past 10,000 years of continual warfare, violence, and deprivation resulting from the expropriation of land and water for the profitable ranching of domesticated animals and the hunting of the flesh, skin, and tusk of others continued into other regions of the world. In Australia, for example, British ranchers also committed acts of genocide against indigenous peoples there. Just as in the Americas, many of the indigenous peoples in Australia were murdered for their attempts to defend their lands, and many others died from zoonotic diseases brought by the Europeans. By 1895, many who survived were exploited as cheap laborers, prim primarily by ranchers. Ranchers who had populated the continent with 106 million sheep. In Latin America, a region already ravaged for centuries by expanding ranching operations, more devastation was to come. Movements for independence from European domination in the 19th century were mostly co-opted by large landowners and ranchers. Powerful elites brought newly independent South American nations into bloody wars. Wars fought primarily over land, water, and the profits to be had by exporting salted flesh. One of the deadliest of these wars, the War of the Triple Alliance, fought from 1864 until 1870, led to the deaths of nearly 400,000 people. And the Native Americans who still remained on their traditional homelands there were hit by new waves of ranching expansion. For example, a genocidal war carried out against the Native Americans from 1879 to 1880 in Argentina, a campaign known as the Conquest of the Desert. The assault was led by military general and rancher Julio Roca, whose success in killing displaced Native Americans helped him to become president of Argentina. Thousands of indigenous people were killed 
and women and girls were subjected to sexual violence. In his report on the campaign, Roca boasted, not a single place is left in the desert where Indians can now gather to threaten colonists on the Pampa. It is everywhere covered with good pasturage. Meanwhile, in North America, the first military campaign of the newly established United States in 1794 was to wipe out Native American resistance in the Ohio Territory, for much of their land fell into the hands of elite ranchers known as the Cattle Kings, who dominated economic and political decision-making. In 1817, the U.S. government sent 3,000 soldiers led by Andrew Jackson into Spanish-controlled Florida in response to several charges, including allegations that the people of the Seminole Nation were stealing cows. Although the Seminoles had resorted to raising cows years earlier, making it unlikely that the cows they held were stolen, Jackson's campaign against them, the first Seminole War, captured an estimated 1,600 cows. Jackson's bloody campaign left Native American villages smoldering. Unlike Argentina's Julio Roca, Jackson's success in killing Native Americans helped to catapult him to the presidency. In the United States, Native Americans were continually pushed west with ranchers on their heels. In the South, ranchers moved into Mexico, which had become independent from Spain in 1821. In that year, a rancher named James Taylor White migrated from Louisiana to the Mexican province of Texas with a small group of domesticated cows. Ten years later, he had 3,000 cows under his control, and by 1836, he was the wealthiest person in the province. Many ranchers, like White, used people who were enslaved to oversee the cows and pigs under their control. Ranchers, planters, and other expansionists in the United States resented Mexican taxes and coveted Mexican lands. In 1836, U.S. immigrants in Texas crafted their own Declaration of Independence in a meeting at James Taylor White's ranch, and they took the province from Mexico by force. Ten years later, the U.S. government declared Texas a state and provoked a border skirmish, prompting a congressional vote for war. A fierce invasion of Mexico followed, and shameful atrocities were committed by U.S. forces who robbed, raped, and killed many Mexican civilians. By early 1848, the U.S. had defeated the Mexican army, and Mexico was forced to give up an enormous amount of territory, over a half million square miles, including California. A potential bonanza awaited ranchers and investors. However, before the Great Plains and the lands taken from Mexico could be fully exploited for ranching, Native Americans had to be removed and sequestered on reservations, and free-living animals, including grazers like the buffalo, stood as obstacles to ranching profits. Again, the U.S. military stepped in to do the job. Encouraging the slaughter of millions of buffalo, the commander of U.S. forces in the West, General Philip Sheridan, boasted that buffalo hunters would eliminate, quote, the Indian's commissary. And he declared, let them kill, skin, and sell until the buffalo is exterminated. Then your prairies can be covered with speckled cattle and the festive cowboy. Buffalo were not the only animals slated for extermination. Ranchers and their government supporters declared war on prairie dogs, wolves, and other animals perceived as posing a threat to ranching profits. 
Similarly, free-living animals in Australia, such as kangaroos, wallabies, and dingoes, and animals in Africa, including antelope, lions, zebra, and leopards, and animals in Latin America, including cougars and jaguars, all were ruthlessly hunted or poisoned. Such carnage, promoted by ranchers, continues to this day. The massacre of Native Americans by, by the U.S. government, like the Ash Hollow Massacre in Nebraska and the Sand Creek Massacre in Colorado, echoed the treatment of indigenous peoples around the world, tragedies caused in large part by the expropriation of land and water for ranching. The historian Alfred Crosby has called the population collapse of indigenous peoples in the Americas after the European invasion, quote, the greatest tragedy in the history of the human species. Actually, the tragedy in the Americas was essentially a continuation of the entangled violence, warfare, and disease that has plagued much of Eurasia for many centuries, a colossal catastrophe for humans and other animals that came to plague the Americas, Africa, Australia, and other regions, creating enormous world-changing disasters that were enabled and promoted by domestication, and also by the hunting and killing of free-living animals. These corrupted practices of the past were the foundation of the modern era, and this destructive, entangled violence was no longer driven by elite warriors or emperors, but by the institutionalized greed that is inherent in the capitalist system. At the start of the 20th century, the rapacious nature of human society would have seemed familiar to Genghis Khan. The United States, a highly patriarchal society, also characterized by racism, classism, speciesism, and other forms of oppression, was emerging as a primary global power. Profit maximization eclipsed all other social concerns, and the highly predatory practices of the past continued. The hunting of other animals for sport was regarded as the epitome of manly behavior. People of color, women, workers, especially those trying to unionize, reformers and critics of capitalism were exploited, marginalized, repressed, and brutalized. Wealthy individuals and rising giant business corporations began to exert influence and control over newspapers, broadcast media, and higher education and public consciousness was now being socially engineered. Railroads, privately owned and constructed by oppressed immigrants, connected large western ranching operations to eastern markets and led to the rise of giant slaughterhouses, infamous for the cruel, rapid pace killing and disassembly of enormous numbers of animals, acts performed by super-exploited workers. Railroad companies and giant slaughterhouse firms coalesced with the U.S. Department of Agriculture, grain producers, commercial retail operations, and banks to form an early version of what anthropologist Barbara Nosky aptly called the animal industrial complex. It was during the Great Depression, a calamity produced largely by the greedy and self-interested pursuit of profit, that a grain surplus caused farm revenues to fall. The solution eventually proposed by agribusiness and government officials was to offer subsidies to grain producers while diverting much of the surplus for use as feed for domesticated animals and to promote increased public consumption of animal products. 
Over time, this strategy facilitated the rise of the fast food industry and would spawn ubiquitous advertisements pushing public consumption of hamburgers and related fare. An early example of this corporate cultivation of consumer preferences occurred when the Beechnut Packing Company contracted with the man called the father of public relations, Edward L. Bernays. Bernays, who was a student and nephew of Sigmund Freud, decided he would increase Beechnut's profits by increasing overall public consumption of animal products. One of Bernays' means of manipulating the public was to represent the stance of apparent experts in a way that promoted his clients' interests. The typical breakfast at the time was juice, toast, and coffee. Bernays surveyed physicians asking what they believed was better, a hearty breakfast or a lighter meal. When most physicians responded that a hearty breakfast was better, Bernays launched a national advertising campaign and successfully pitched bacon and eggs as a hearty breakfast recommended by physicians. Thus, this artery-clogging combination became the norm at the American breakfast table. People socially engineered to consume increasing amounts of animal products paid with their lives. Growing numbers died prematurely, and many continue to die in large numbers from heart disease, stroke, and various forms of cancer, leaving devastated families behind. Capitalism, especially in the United States, had been revived after the Great Depression by a second horrific world war among competing capitalist nations. Wartime military production spurred industrial growth and consolidation and greater government support for the animal industrial complex. For example, a 1943 U.S. government pamphlet read as follows, American meat is fighting food. It's an important part of a military man's diet, giving him the energy to outfight the enemy. Meat from farms and packing houses is playing a part almost on par with tanks, planes, and bullets. The animal industrial complex and the military industrial complex were becoming closely aligned. After World War II, consumption of other animals as food by people in the United States continued to grow due to the availability of large quantities of subsidized feed grains and because of the development of factory farming. Due to the socially engineered growing consumption of animal products and the limited land mass on which to raise them, Domesticated animals increasingly were confined in highly intensive artificial confinements called concentrated animal feeding operations. Under this profitable, efficient, but morally bankrupt system, domesticated animals now came to live their entire lives inside small overcrowded cages and enclosures. If one were to devise a hell on earth for other animals, worse circumstances hardly could be imagined. While such treatment of other animals was occurring in the United States, and as the North American hamburger culture grew, food retailers began to seek low-cost flesh for hamburgers from Latin America. This practice was strongly supported by the U.S. government, which, with the assistance of the World Bank, loaned hundreds of millions of dollars to Latin America for the expansion of privately owned ranching operations. This policy, 
popular with elite landowners in the region, was calculated to place Latin American economies and governments more firmly under U.S. control, especially after U.S. capitalism and hegemony were challenged by the 1959 revolution in Cuba. As a result, Latin America was hit by a third major wave of domestication-related violence and warfare. Lands in Central America, occupied by subsistence farmers and indigenous communities, were aggressively expropriated for the expansion of ranching operations. Rural jobs connected to coffee and other export crops diminished, and many landowners switched to more profitable ranching enterprises. People who resisted the taking of their land and the loss of their jobs were violently suppressed by U.S.-backed governments. Central America was engulfed in brutal repression and warfare for decades as the consumption of cheap hamburgers in the United States steadily grew. Reflecting on the level of violence in the region, sociologist Daniel Faber notes that Guatemala, for example, quote, experienced heavy deforestation and peasant displacement by powerful ranchers. Discontent quickly ripened into rebellion. Faber continues, at the urging of the U.S. State Department, the Guatemalan government launched a series of merciless attacks on peasant communities to break the resistance. U.S. supported and piloted helicopter gunships, fighter jets, and bombers armed with napalm and heavy bombs assisted the Guatemalan army in the carnage." Unquote. One of the notable figures involved in crushing the resistance movement in Guatemala, Colonel Carlos Osario, was rewarded the same way as Hernan Cortez more than 400 years earlier. Osario was given a large ranch by the government as a reward for his brutal campaign against indigenous peoples. And like Argentina's Julio Roca and Andrew Jackson in the United States, Osario went on to become president of Guatemala. Sociologist Patricia Howard notes that while the widespread violence in Central America and the latter half of the 20th century drew worldwide attention, not many associated it with ranching. Howard observes that not only did U.S. promoted ranching in Central America, quote, result in massive change in land use, but the impoverishment and displacement of the rural masses became the impoverishment of the urban masses, which translated into below subsistence wages for the proletariat, unquote. The use of the military-industrial complex to expand the animal-industrial complex was very effective. As a result of U.S. policies, by the 1980s, the amount of land in Central America used for grazing came to exceed that of all other agricultural land put together, while half of the human population there could not meet their minimal nutritional needs. Throughout virtually all of Latin America, the conversion of tropical forests into ranches has been responsible for more deforestation than all other production systems combined. Meanwhile, public consumption of the animal-based diet, widely referred to as the Western diet, grew both in the United States and around the world. For example, while the global human population roughly doubled between 1960 and 2010, the global production of animal flesh as food increased fourfold, topping 286 million tons. Today, while more than a billion people around the world suffer from chronic hunger, 
Over 70% of all the world's agricultural land is used to generate animal products, mainly for more affluent nations. This utter waste of resources has also caused profound environmental damage. Enormous areas of land in the United States, Latin America, Africa, and Australia have been severely degraded by ranching. According to the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, 75% of all the land used for pasture is in the process of turning into desert. And topsoil, thousands of years in the making, is being depleted for the production of feed grains for tens of billions of intensively confined animals. 85% of all the soy meal produced in the world and two-thirds of all the corn produced is used for feed. Healthy, fertile topsoil is essential for life on the planet, and this precious resource is vital to support a growing human population estimated to reach 10 billion hungry people by about 2070. Another valuable finite resource being massively squandered to turn domesticated animals into food is fresh water. Only 2.5% of all the water on the planet is fresh water, and enormous amounts are spent raising tens of billions of domesticated animals and irrigating feed crops. The typical diet of a person in the United States requires 4,200 gallons of water per day, while a person on a vegan diet requires only 300 gallons a day. This careless use of water occurs as more than half the people in the world live in nations where water is becoming severely scarce and where water tables are falling rapidly. Compounding this growing crisis of water depletion is the damage done by the growth and expansion of factory farming. Giant feedlots and concentrated animal feeding operations in the United States and around the world generate mammoth amounts of manure and chemical residue that pollute streams and rivers and kills aquatic animals and contaminate underground water. And the harms done by factory farms are not only environmental, they are also increasing the risk of a deadly influenza pandemic. Due to the expansion of large-scale factory farms throughout the world, public health advocates anticipate the emergence of new, highly infectious strains of influenza. The intensive confinement of tens of billions of animals today could hardly have been better designed as breeding grounds for deadly zoonotic diseases. While smallpox hopefully has been eradicated, influenza pandemics emerged three times during the 20th century, including the deadly pandemic of 1918 that took well over 50 million lives. The 2009 H1N1 outbreak a pandemic originating in factory farms in North Carolina killed nearly 285,000 people. Reflecting on the ongoing threat, one public health professional writes, quote, inductive reasoning leads to the conclusion that another influenza epidemic will arise. The relevant questions are when the next one will occur and how bad it will be. Threats to public health also stem from the practice of feeding enormous amounts of antibiotics to confined animals to produce rapid growth and to manage infections. Such use increases the development of deadly antibiotic-resistant bacteria, which every year sickens over 2 million people and kills nearly 100,000. An enormous amount of energy is used to raise other animals for food. 
It takes on average 28 calories of fossil fuel energy to produce one calorie of unhealthy animal-based protein. But it takes only a little over three calories of fossil fuel energy to produce one calorie of healthy protein from plants. So much oil is needed for the animal-based diet of the United States. It has been calculated that if everyone on the planet ate the same way, the world's remaining oil reserves would be exhausted in seven years. Such appalling practices of the animal industrial complex, including the wasteful use of fresh water, topsoil, and oil, again, precious resources that should be conserved to feed a growing global population are compounded by climate change. While a 2006 report by the United Nations Food and Agriculture Organization estimated that raising animals for food generates 18% of human-made greenhouse gases, scientists associated with the World Bank argue that the truer level is nearer to 51%. Climate change is linked to an increasing incidence of severe storms, tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, droughts, wildfires, and rising temperatures around the world all of which reduce harvests and make future food shortages all but certain. So it was not surprising when the Director General of the World Health Organization recently stated that the most serious threats to international security were climate change, food shortages, and an influenza pandemic. The Director General easily could have included on that list the depletion of fresh water, topsoil, and fossil fuels. All of these threats are directly tied to animal exploitation, especially to their profitable use as food. Despite the impending global calamity, capitalists continue the myopic pursuit of personal enrichment. The animal industrial complex is striving to double globally by mid-century. The Wall Street Journal advises readers on how to, quote, mine the scarcity boom. The paper urges investment in agricultural commodities, farmland, and water. Likewise, Fortune magazine touts investment in private water companies as, quote, one of the world's great business opportunities, unquote. As early as 2002, a team of international scientists cautioned that as global consumption of other animals as food increases, by 2050, an area the size of the United States would need to be found for additional pasture and cropland. They predicted that the expansion would come in Latin America and Africa, areas already devastated by centuries of domestication-related violence and theft of land. Tragically, the 2002 scientific prediction appears to be coming true. A recent Oxfam report estimated that more than 227 million hectares of land in Africa and Latin America already have been leased or sold and used disproportionately for ranching and feed grain production. Such land grabs are viewed as a good investment by banks and hedge fund managers and by affluent nations who view such acquisitions as they mean to continue and expand the Western diet. No other sector of the capitalist system is endangering the earth and all its inhabitants more than the animal industrial complex. The spread of the Western diet, the depletion of finite resources, environmental decline, and climate change are all being monitored by the military industrial complex. A 2003 report by U.S. military officials 
cautioned that rapid climate change could produce mega droughts, famine, widespread rioting, and a threat to global security. In 2007, a report by a panel of 11 retired U.S. generals and admirals maintained that climate change poses, quote, a serious threat to America's national security and will exacerbate global instability and tensions, unquote. The report recommends that the national security consequences of climate change should be fully integrated into national defense strategies. And a 2008 report by the National Intelligence Council stated that the expansion of the Western diet and climate change will, quote, yield a tangle of difficult to manage consequences by the year 2030, unquote. Also in 2008, a report by senior European Union officials stated that increased competition for water, grain, and energy had the potential to create significant conflicts in Africa, the Middle East, and between Russia and the European Union. In 2009, a report by the Australian Defense Force warned that global warming could create failed states across the Pacific as sea levels rise and conflict over resources develops. Today, both the Pentagon and the CIA monitor the advance and implication of climate change for U.S. national interests, which is code for the interests of economic elites. As the globalization of the Western diet continues and as critical finite resources become scarce and global warming unfolds, powerful nations like the United States and Britain, with long histories of imperialistic and chauvinistic foreign policies, unquestionably will use military force to control critical fresh water, arable land, and other valuable resources, as foretold by the unprovoked and disastrous invasion of oil-rich Iraq. In the face of the enormous problems caused by the animal industrial complex, some of my friends on the political left believe they're being responsible by consuming local free-range animal products. I applaud my friends for eating local plant-based food, but have to argue to them that the continued consumption of animal products is more harmful than they know. The reduction in food miles from consuming local animal products is overshadowed by the energy and resources necessary for their production and refrigeration. And while the more affluent among us can afford the more expensive grass-fed products and thus avoid eating domesticated animals plied with pesticides, antibiotics, and hormones, the vast majority will continue to eat the cheapest fare that the animal industrial complex can produce. And even if the world were more equitable, moral and environmental issues aside, there simply is not enough land or water to free range the tens of billions of domesticated animals necessary to meet the growing socially engineered demand. Other friends believe they are helping the planet by only eating animals who live in water. However, large-scale commercial fishing is killing the oceans, while those animals who survive are threatened by rising water temperatures. Newly developing aquatic factory farm operations are terrible for animals and are environmentally unsound. Open water cages are a primary cause of ocean pollution, and tank-based aquatic factory farms require an enormous supply of valuable fresh water and are consuming increasing amounts of soy and corn as feed. As long as it is considered morally and socially acceptable for people to eat and use animal products, locally produced or not, 
the disastrous global expansion of the animal industrial complex will continue. Some observe that a transition to veganism is not possible for many of the poor and marginalized people of the world. The reality is, as climate change advances, those who are compelled to rely on pastoralism, hunting, or fishing are at growing risk for food shortages and famine. However, until affordable plant-based food is available to all throughout the world, criticism of people who have no alternative to exploiting animals for subsistence should be redirected against the capitalist system. So then, as we have seen, large-scale human violence and warfare began with the systemic oppression of other animals 10,000 years ago. Human societies were debased and social progress stymied. We can only imagine how human societies might have developed in the absence of domestication, the amount of suffering that would not have occurred, the countless lives that could have been fully lived, and the conceivable contributions of those millions and millions of people to advances in science, medicine, the arts, and plausibly, the creation of a just and peaceful world. Contrary to what we have been taught, the truth is that the oppression of other animals is unnatural and has undermined human social progress. We must not let the devastating practices tied to animal oppression Practices that corrupted the past and the present determine the future. The writer and civil rights advocate James Baldwin, in a powerful appeal to socially conscious people, wrote these words in his 1963 book, The Fire Next Time. If we insist on or create the consciousness of the others and do not falter in our duty now, we may be able, handful that we are, to end the racial nightmare and achieve our country and change the history of the world. If we do not now dare everything, the fulfillment of that prophecy recreated from the Bible in the song by a slave is upon us. God gave Noah the rainbow sign, no more water, the fire next time. Today, no more water, the fire next time, might well refer to the disastrous depletion of the Earth's fresh water supplies and the rising heat that will accompany climate change. The fire next time may also well mean the regional and international violence and warfare that will result from competition over land, water, and other life-sustaining resources. As Baldwin urged those concerned with injustice to dare everything to, to create the consciousness of injustice in others, it is up to all of us to dare to create a new consciousness to cultivate our own sensitivity to the suffering of all earthlings and understand how the oppression of humans and other animals is deeply entangled. Only if we all work together to promote a global movement for a democratic, non-sexist and just world, one that includes urgent calls for the transcendence of the capitalist system and the global transition to a vegan diet, can we truly change the history of the world and avoid the fire next time. Thank you for your patience and your tolerance. That was David Nybert on the Animal Industrial Complex. He spoke in Cleveland, Ohio. David Nybert is an award-winning writer and professor at Wittenberg University. He's the author of Animal Rights, Human Rights, and Animal Oppression and Human Violence.
This program is produced by Alternative Radio, an unembedded award-winning weekly series based in Boulder, Colorado. Since we began broadcasting in 1986, AR is independent. We feature such voices as Chris Hedges, Arundhati Roy, Sandra Steingraber, Glenn Greenwald, Michelle Alexander, and Tariq Ali. To access our complete audio and book archive, just go to our website, alternativeradio.org. Series theme music is performed by the Kronos Quartet from Pieces of Africa. Joe Ritchie is our editor. I'm David Barsamian. Thank you for listening. You're listening to Freedom of Species on 3CR Community Radio. I hope you enjoyed that presentation from David Nybert on the animal industrial complex. I know it was pretty densely packed, but if you want to revisit it and pick through it, you can listen to the podcast on 3CR or on the Freedom of Species website. So we had our Radiothon show last Sunday, and we had some lovely people pledge money to help us keep um, broadcasting for another year. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But here's the big but. We still have a lot to raise to meet our target. So if you feel it's important to keep independent media on the air, please donate. Or if you feel it's important to have a voice speaking out for the most exploited beings in our society, please donate. And if you feel it's important to make a tax-deductible donation before the end of the financial year, please donate. You can donate online at 3cr.org.au or you can come into the office at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy, during business hours. Or you can call 03-9419-8377 and donate over the phone. Please help us keep doing what we do. Oh, there's another thing that we've got to talk about, and that's if you haven't bought a ticket to our trivia afternoon next Sunday, you should get cracking because it's on at uh, the Euro Kitchen, which is an all-vegan restaurant and cafe in Fitzroy. It's going to be great. There's going to, tickets are only $12.50 or $29 or $30 for trivia and a meal. They're serving Beyond Meat burgers, which are actually the best burgers in the world. Or donor kebabs, not just your standard donor kebab, a very fancy donor kebab and with um, cans of drinks. So $12.50 just for trivia or $29, $30 for a meal. There's tables of six, but you don't need to come with a whole table of six. You can just join a table. So please get online, go to our Facebook page or the Facebook page of Trivia for the Animals and buy a ticket and please come along. That is all part of our Radiothon fundraising. So that's it for today. You can contact us by email, info at freedomofspecies.org. And you can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter. So stay tuned for In Psychedelia. It's coming up right now and we will see you next week. I'm Tash Sultana and you are listening to 3CR. Please subscribe. Do yourselves a massive favour. Thank you very much. Did you enjoy listening to that podcast? Here at 3CR, we're a community radio station, and you're part of that. Right now is Radiothon, when we ask our community to pitch in with a few dollars that can help keep media in the hands of our community. This year, we need to raise $250,000 to keep the station on air. Any amount that you can afford makes a big difference. And it's really easy to donate. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash donate.
Your support is greatly appreciated and helps us power radical podcasts for yet another year. Thanks, as always, for listening.